Michelle Luevno, the host of Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast produced by the El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. On this episode, we welcome a special guest from Austin, Texas, Annie Spillman, the Texas Director for the National Federation of Independent Businesses. With all of the talk about COVID-19, it is really easy to forget that we are actually heading into a legislative year in 2021. COVID-19 will certainly have an impact on this next session, and Annie is with us to discuss what our legislative session could look like in a post-COVID-19 world. Before we get into our conversation, we want to thank our partners, Sun Carpets, who provided the insulation for our recording studio that we hope to be recording from very soon. And of course, we also want to thank Epicenter. If you are looking for commercial real estate in the El Paso area, make sure to give Epicenter a call. They have fantastic locations to choose from all over El Paso so you can find the best fit for you and your business. So it is my immense pleasure to introduce a very good friend of the El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, Annie, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Michelle. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you great. Okay, great. Well, I just want to say thank you for having me. Um, like Michelle said, NFIB and the El Paso Senate Chamber have a great relationship, a great partnership. Um, Y'all always help out at our small business day and you bring up a good amount of people to come and those small business days are right before legislative session. Um, and last year we had, actually several years, but last year we had the governor come and be our headliner speaker at lunch. Um, we had over 200 people in attendance. It was a really great uh, fun moment for small business owners across the state to be able to get together and um, you know share their stories, talk with the governor, take pictures. It was a fun time. Um, I wanted to acknowledge that I saw that your sponsors were the Minority Women Enterprise Diversity Center, uh, Women Border Center, and uh, Minority Business Development Agencies. Just so you know, NFIB works with a lot of these uh, like-minded groups, uh, women-owned business groups, minority uh, business groups, through the uh, SBDCs and the SBA. And if you already didn't know this little tidbit, um, Texas is actually number two in the nation for uh, minority-owned businesses. We have over a million in Texas. And then uh, we're actually number three for women-owned businesses, um, just under a million. And we kind of go up and down from that. In 2015, the governor came to our Small Business Day, and Georgia was number one for women-owned businesses at the time, and he proclaimed that he wanted to make Texas number one, and in his first um, you know, reign at the Capitol, uh, Texas was number one for women-owned businesses, but we sort of flopped back and forth. But just know that that is something that NFIB does work with the governor's office on um, and the SBDCs and SBA to make sure that we keep growing those businesses and keep the representation in the business community really looking like the representation in the state. So um, I just wanted to quickly kind of talk about who NFIB is so you get a, an idea where we're coming from. And I know that um, many of you who are members of the El Paso Spanish Chamber are members of NFIB and several other great advocacy groups. Um, but NFIB in Texas alone, we've got uh, 20,000 members in Texas alone. And what's unique about NFIB that we're really proud, and the chamber is very reflective of this as well, but we're really proud when we go speak to uh, the legislators at the Capitol or when we're speaking to Congress, you know, NFIB really does represent pretty much every economic sector of the state of Texas, from the construction industry to, you know, wholesale, retail, services industry, agriculture, manufacturing, you name it. And so when we poll our members, which we do because we're a member advocacy organization, and that was easy for me to say, and um, 
it's truly one member, one vote. So especially during things like this, with this pandemic, we're surveying our members frequently because we're using that feedback to talk to Congress, to talk to our legislators, to help develop what the needs are gonna be out in the business community. And actually we're using it with media. And as media, you know, is sort of our vessel to get that information out there, it draws attention to the priorities and needs of the small business community, especially, you know, far out in El Paso, all the way out to Abilene, and, you know, really representing all of the communities uh, in this great state. So, um, you know, NFIB, like I said, member-driven advocacy organization, um, we do ballot our members um, on the state level and the national level. Nationally, we've got about 300,000 members. And as, as you know, um, you know, chambers understand this just as much as we do. Membership levels go up and down. And right now we've got, um, we've got members, we've got small businesses that are in dire straits. Obviously, they've been shut down. They haven't been making revenue. They've had to let people go or furlough employees. And, you know, they already operate on thin margins. And while I think most of them understand that being a part of an organization is probably the most important thing you can do as a, as a business owner in this state. Um, you know, sometimes you just, you, you have to say, I'm going to have to quit and I'll come back next year. We understand that. In every call that I've gotten since this COVID crisis has started, I haven't asked them if they're a member. I've answered their questions and we've helped them out. And, you know, frankly, um, we're just here to help the small business community, whether or not you're a member, obviously we'd like you to be of Chambers and of NFIB because that helps grow the army, our small business voice. And the more members we can say we have, you know, the less they can turn a blind eye and the more they want to listen. So that being said, I said, you know, advocacy is very important. And any of you tuning in understand that. One of my most favorite quotes that I really think, if you, if you listen to it, really embodies it. So uh, it's by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're thousands of miles from the cornfield. So a lot of times these legislators, they might be working with good intent, they love small business, um, but they oftentimes, they think they know more about your business and your employees and your customers than you do as veteran business owners. So that's why you've got advocates there for you to speak to your local governments, to speak to the state level folks and to speak to the federal folks, to talk to them about the impact that small business has on our economy and how you know, they really are the economic backbone of our economy and then how the impact of what they do can affect greatly whether they keep their doors open or not and whether they employ people. So what I wanted to quickly do today, and I, cause I, I want to leave some time for some conversations and Q and A, but, and, and, you know, much of this, I'm not going to get deep into the woods because we've, I'm sure you've been on a million webinars. You've watched the news, we've covered it, but just to briefly talk about sort of the before, during and after of COVID and what that means for the small business community. So before COVID started, when NFIB was polling our members, we do a small business optimism index because we have a chief economist through our research foundation, NFIB. And actually that's used on things like um, any of the, the financial news stations nationally, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, uh, Wall Street Journal, it's used locally. Um, but our optimism index was the highest it had ever been before COVID. And we based it on several components. We asked business owners, is this a good time to expand? The answers were yes. Is this a good time to hire on more people? The answers were yes. And then we asked about their uncertainty. Is your uncertainty um, high or low about economic conditions or government regulations? 
And their uncertainty levels were, were right at that place where they did feel like they could expand, that they could offer benefits and bonuses and hire more people, increase wages. So it was looking really good. And as you know, the unemployment rate in the States before COVID was the lowest it's ever been in the history of time. Um, now let's look at COVID. Um, as we surveyed our members through that, we continue that optimism index. We, we survey them um, uh, quarterly and actually we've sur surveyed them even more as this has gone on. But now those components to the index, is it a good time to expand? It's the lowest it's ever been, the answers to that. Are you looking to hire? Uh, no, obviously, because they've been closed. I will tell you that the most recent optimism index that we did reported that small business owners have gone up um, and, and I'll tell you why it's kind of gone up. You can kind of see the two things match in the middle. When COVID first started, you know, the optimism was dropping and our members were responding. They did not feel like it was a good time to expand, et cetera. So once Congress passed phase one, phase two, phase three of the CARES Act, which offered some financial assistance to small businesses, um, you know, it did it, it expand the, the UI, the unemployment insurance programs. Um, it offered the IDLE loans through the SBA, those economic injury disaster loans. So now, uh, as of last week, we polled our members and they said, small business community said, um, we feel like in the next six months, we know now that, that the economy's not doing well um, in dire straits. Um, but in the next six months, we feel like business conditions will be better, meaning that, and this is what I've had to explain, um, in Texas, as the governor has reopened the economy, and we'll get more into that in a minute, but business conditions, they feel like will improve. And that is because the governor has slowly been reopened the economy, trying to do that in a safe, effective, and, you know, health, health conscious um, manner. And so... So small businesses are saying, yes, we think conditions will be better, meaning that we can operate, but they're also saying when we polled them that their expectations of real sales, bringing in revenue, uh, are low, the lowest they've ever been. So we use that information to say to Congress and to our governor and to our lawmakers here, um, you know, we've got to be more flexible with that PPP loan that, um, that small businesses and, and other businesses have applied for, but those PPP loans were meant for small businesses. Um, but, you know, as of right now, the way the PPP loan, um, if you apply for it in order to, for it to be forgiven, as many of you know, you know, 75% of that has to be spent on hiring back employees, has to be spent on payroll. 25% of that can be used on your business operations, like your, you know, your rent, your, um, you know, debt obligations, your utility bills. As time has progressed, and even though businesses have been able to reopen in some aspect, getting back employees has been very hard because while you've been able to reopen, it's been at a certain percentage um, and you may not have even reopened at all. And so in order for that loan to be forgiven, you, you, know, you have to spend most of that on payroll. It's awful difficult when you can't hire people back and you're not operating. Now, the purpose of it was to get people back work and get them off unemployment insurance. And we're sensitive to that. And so are all of our members in the small business community. And that's what they're trying to do. But the fact of the matter is it's, it's not been really 
kind of the real world situation. So what we've asked Congress is if they would be look at and kind of phase four of this, um, look at being more flexible with those PPP loans, you know, maybe make it 50 50, let them spend more of that on utilities that they haven't been able to pay for because they haven't had any revenue into the next, you know, coming months, um, you know, let them spend it more on rent, um, but equally on payroll to get people back. Um, and then some of the also the things with the PPP that we've asked for is that they extend out that eight week period in which that the cost is covered uh, to be forgiven. And I know those are some things being proposed in Congress right now, and I'll kind of dive a little bit deeper into that um, in a minute. But, you know, as you know, the, the first phase of that CARES Act, um, I have to say, and as you, as you probably know already, NFIB is not a partisan organization. We represent small business owners, and that's what we represent. We don't represent a party, and we never express um, party positions. And so it's unfortunate whenever certain things become a party issue when they're really not to the real world people, the real world practitioners, that being paid sick leave. So the first um, part of that uh, CARES Act uh, mandated that uh, business owners um, pay an extended paid, paid sick leave, extended uh, family medical care act. That's um, sort of a double whammy on a small business who already, again, we've talked about operates on thin margins, but is having to shut down their shops and doing everything they can to keep employees on, um, but then been told, you know, well, here's an added cost to the other bag of costs that you have. Um, and we all agree that paid sick leave is a wonderful uh, benefit. And actually when we polled our members, the majority of our members do offer some sort of paid time off. But when right out of the shoot, Congress, the first thing they did with the, the CARES Act was, you know, put down this paid sick leave and again, we understand the intentions, but like we talked about before, farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're thousands of miles from the cornfield, right? So that, that second round is where we got those, uh, the PPP money and the auto loans. Um, the third round, as you know, they refilled the coppers on the PPP loans. And at this point, while in the beginning, the majority of our members said they had not received um, uh, any acknowledgement of their application of the PPP or those auto loans, um, now, the majority of them have received some PPP money. We're still having a lag with um, mem members getting those idle loans. Some of them have gotten the emergency grant money, which, as you may know, um, an employer can apply to uh, for that money, $1,000 per employee up to $10,000. We've heard a lot of people have gotten that, um, which is forgivable as well, but we're still hearing the lag in, in members getting the idle loans. So, um, you know, just to sort of uh, move forward a little bit, because I was trying to talk about pre-COVID and then kind of what was going on in these last several months with COVID, um, the responses we were getting from our members. Out of those, what we've uh, proposed to Congress, NFIB, is a 10-point legislative plan for small business survival. So it includes recommendations for the PPP and IDA loans, and it includes recommendations for making compliance simpler. So taking off the regulatory burden, um, and then you know several other things. It's a ten-point plan. I won't get into it, but I'm happy to share it with Michelle and Cindy to, to send around. Um, we did put it out in a press release as well. One of the things when that's coming up now, as as we're looking at reopening, as we're moving into the reopening phase of this COVID world, learning how to do that, making sure that employers are keeping their customers safe keeping their employees safe, 
um, making it a safe environment for everyone has been extremely important to our members. They are their number one priority, obviously, but also so is making revenue and keeping their doors open um, so they can make payroll and keep them safe. Um, but as it's come up, when we've pulled our member, 74% of our members have expressed that they are very concerned about any sort of increased liability. Um, so we're already starting to see some frivolous liability claims. Look, not to say that you shouldn't go after people that aren't following the rules and they're being litigious, um, but if the business is, is following, you know, all the health services um, requirements and the CDC and they're checking off those boxes and they're, and they're wearing face masks and they're sanitizing their place and they're keeping it at the percentage capacity of customers that they're supposed to um, and they're checking all those boxes and you know the small businesses the most are the sitting ducks. They're the ones that the lawyers come after because they can scare them. They don't have in-house lawyers or compliance officers. So what we've seen in the past with um, you know sort of claims against employers is that um, they generally come in and say you violated this, this, and this. The small business owner says oh my God, I don't have time for, you know, uh, to spend with a lawyer. I don't have costs for a lawyer. I, you know, I, I can't spend time away from my business. So generally they settle and, you know, they get a lump sum out of the small business owner, um, which, you know, any amount of money would be a major hit to a small business owner. So what we're looking to do right now, um, because we are worried that um, these small businesses might be sitting decks again during this, that someone could just say, I was exposed to COVID and just go blanket sue all these businesses down Main Street or that some lawyer might find an employee to file a complaint or do some sort of class action. So we've made some recommendations to Congress um, regarding immunity with some caveats, you know, unless you can prove, um, you know, that the business has grossly violated, you know, health codes um, and, you know, is not in compliance clearly, then there would be some sort of blanket immunity moving forward with some caveats. So we are working on some liability resolutions uh, with Congress and then and with the governor. We were actually just on a call with uh, Senator Cornyn uh, yesterday, I believe, regarding um, some, some options and some, reg some, regulatory uh, action in order to protect specifically the small business community against um, liability. And so, uh, and actually uh, last week, the governor, the speaker and lieutenant governor um, was urging support for employer liability protections and they sent that, um, that letter to the administration and the Congress. Um, so like I said, unless there's some sort of gross negligence on the employer's uh, standpoint, then we believe that we should uh, be very proactive and protecting them. Um, and then, so let's kind of move forward to where we are now and what we're going to do legislatively. So um, the budget, obviously, in Texas has taken a one-two punch um, with business shutdowns and low oil prices. So that's where we are. And I wanted to share with you, in case you've missed it, um, that the comptroller, in order to kind of be proactive going into session, um, has already asked state agencies to cut their spending ahead of uh, tax revenue pro uh, projections that are going to be coming in this summer in July. 
which is usually when the comptroller does release um, tax revenue pro projections, and then what 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 that budget's going to look like moving into session. Um, so, sort of that midpoint before we start session in January. But he's asked agencies to cut their spending. Um, the he expects that the new estimate. Um, is probably going to be a revised downward adjustment of several billion dollars. Um, however, well, you know, and the comptroller acknowledged that Texas, the Texas economy is in recession. So it's a fact of the matter. So they're planning ahead. Our leadership is planning ahead. As an organization, we're planning ahead on what our asks are going to be um, and what, what the reality is for, for small business owners moving forward. But um, Hager, Comptroller Hager, uh, he thinks at this point that we won't have to resort to a special session. Um, that because of a combination of uh, federal relief money, proactive spending cuts by state agencies, and temporary uh, temporary borrowing um, from the state's uh, $8.5 billion rainy fund, rainy day fund, excuse me, um, to help with cash flow. Now that that rainy day fund portion will be paid back with interest. But Comptroller Hager feels like that'll bridge the gap until the next regular session. Um, and then one, one other thing that the Comptroller's done with, with our urging, and I'm sure other groups urging, um, obviously the franchise tax has always been a very big issue, um, especially for the small business community. Um, oftentimes they have to pay the franchise tax for the net revenue or not. And really they're spending a, a certain amount of money hiring a CPA even to figure out if they owe the tax. So, and again, any, any amount of money to a small business owner is huge because they do operate on thin margins and they need every single cent of it. Um, but the comptroller, the franchise tax would normally be due in May this month. And the comptroller actually pushed back uh, the franchise tax uh, deadline and payments to July 15. And as you know, that matches up with um, the IRS new the new IRS schedule. Um, Long-term solutions for NFIB um, in the business community. And actually, before I get to that, um, I just got something today which was um, very timely. I've been hearing from members already, and we heard this at the end of last session. As you know, um, there was a major property tax reform bill. Um, and some liked it, some didn't. Obviously, I know the, a lot of the localities didn't like it because it put a cap on um, how, what, how you could raise uh, you know, the, the taxes from the previous year. Um, but that it did uh, bring any sort of, um, if, if they did need to raise it, it brought that decision making to the voters. Um, so there would still be potential to raise the tax cap in order to raise uh, taxes. Um, I know that's still an issue, but we have heard from a lot of members, um, especially I'll give you an example of uh, members that have just gone through Hurricane Harvey um, and you know had to deal with that um, while their properties were still going up um, and their UI rates were going up because they had to let people go. And then with this, both are going up as well. Um, they had to let people go again. So the UI rates on the employer went up, property taxes went up, but several members I've heard that their property taxes have gone up and I just want to remind y'all that this is something I got this morning and it was a good reminder because we supported this legislation. Last legislation, there was a bill filed by Representative Phil King in Fort Worth, uh, House Bill 1313. 
and it prohibits an appraisal district after a successful appeal by a property owner from increasing evaluation during the next appraisal cycle without clear and convincing evidence. Um, and it's the highest standard proof in civil law. So um, that has been in effect since January 1. And I know it's kept um, some appraisal districts from going it back and um, raising the appraisal value after the previous uh, cycle. Um, you know, obviously as small business owners, the property taxes are big, especially the business personal property taxes. So any relief in that area is going to be huge. However, we know what we're going into. Um, we're going into a recession where cities and state need all the tax revenue they can get. Um, understanding that, but we still have to go in with our sort of priority list. One of them would be to reduce the tax burden on small businesses. And, you know, I, I know that if you, if you take the tax burden off of one, you know, group of people, you're raising it on another. I don't know. We've got to figure out a way to do this. But one of them we've talked about, and NFIB is part of a property tax stakeholders group, um, is that business personal property tax, which includes the inventory tax. That's that tangible um, inventory that if you were to take your building, turn it upside down, everything that fell out is something that a business owner has to pay tax on. Um, in Texas, we actually are one of the, while we're very business friendly, as far as the business personal property tax, we have among the highest in the nation. Uh, I know a lot of people are surprised to hear that, but we do. Um, it's actually one of those uh, regressive taxes that have never worked. And we've got people both in the, the big business sector, small business sector, and some other um, you know, professorial types agreeing with us that the tax isn't working. Um, so we've talked with, uh, before this happened, I testified at Senate Finance, the Texas Senate Finance Committee, and offered some suggestions for the business personal property tax. One being, right now the exemption for inventory tax for businesses is you have a $500 exemption. Um, so you can zip $500 off of what tax you. Well, that doesn't really do much. It's so de minimis that, yes, it helps, um, but that might pay part of what they're paying the CPA to, to, to their taxes. Um, we've suggested that to really make any sort of impact, they raise that de minimis exemption up to $2,500, and then possibly look at exempting um, businesses that gross a revenue under $5 million. I don't know. We would have to talk with the comptroller's office about what that um, threshold would be. And then another suggestion would be to um, new businesses um, that are starting up their business in the first year would not have to pay their business personal property tax. And then the other suggestion was um, that businesses wouldn't have to pay inventory tax on new equipment. So that does several things. It, it gets people out there buying new, new equipment um, and in incentivizing them to do that. Uh, and then eventually, you know, that'll kind of be a drop in the bucket. It's a slow phase out of the tax, which I've talked to other appraisal districts and they were, they felt that that would be reasonable. Um, the other thing that we are going to be working on this session um, that we're going to be forced to because of COVID, we're going to have to relook at sort of the, um, the UI rate calculator. Um, obviously unemployment rates are going to, going to go really, really high. Um, uh, on, on small businesses. The, there was federal money that came in to help uh, offset um, the cost of the UI um, and the hits of the system in Texas. 
Um, but we still know that the rates are going to go up on employers. So we're just going to have to uh, talk through that with the Texas Workforce Commission and Comptroller's Office and our state leaders. And then, you know, one that is very important, and I know it's sort of a mixed bag, um, you know, locally, but um, for NFIB last session, and we headed up in a, a coalition called Asset. Um, we had 18 other business and industry groups part of the coalition, pretty much every business and industry group in the state, um, several chambers. Um, yeah, it was a coalition set up. It's the Alliance for Securing and Strengthening the Economy in Texas. But as you saw before COVID, you saw a lot of more of the urban localities uh, starting to regulate private employment practices, whereas um, local jurisdictions had never gotten into regulating private uh, employment practices or regulating labor standards. That's been left up to the state or the federal government and the Department of Labor. Um, you know, what we called for last session was legislation that didn't get greedy. It simply prohibited cities from regulating private employment practices in the hiring, benefits, scheduling, and wages. That's it. Um, unfortunately, the bill got tangled up um, with some, obviously, politics. It was beyond our control, and it was um, indefinitely unfixable with what had gone on last session with that bill. It was sort of hijacked and the business community was very upset by it. Um, but it's, it's a preemption bill and you know, we don't wanna take away what cities can do. Currently, uh, we, we're not trying to strong arm cities here. It's not a local control issue. What we are asking is that cities don't regulate private employment practices. They can't even handle the administrative nightmare that that would be on a local level to try to regulate what each employer there does in the way of what benefits they offer or how, that, how many hours they schedule, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, we're willing to talk about any changes on the state level or the national level so that all stakeholders can be involved. It's a diplomatic process. It's a thorough process. It's not just a city council deciding, you know, obviously it has to, the bill has to be filed. It has to be set for committee. The committee has to hear it. Um, it has to be passed out of committee. It has to go to calendars. It has to get on the floor. It has to pass that side. And then it has to go to the other side and go through the whole process. So it, you know, it's a vetted out process and that's why we need very important, you know, regulations like that, that impact an entire community and it impacts an employer's business, it impacts their employees, that that be done in a more thoughtful process on the state level. So that'll be something we work on. And I am workforce skills training, uh, always, always, always number one priority for NFIB. Um, I think after this COVID, we're gonna see you know, a lot of the people that, um, you know, because maybe they didn't have that workforce skills training while they were in high school, um, they couldn't go into in industry jobs. And, you know, a lot of people, there used to be a stigma. You have to go to college and there was no other option. Well, in 2015, we passed legislation that created workforce skills training in schools. And so now students are graduating right out into the workforce. Um, and there's nothing wrong with working with your hands or doing P-TECH type stuff making $80,000 a year. Well, I think we're gonna see now even more support uh, for that workforce skills training so that, you know, it's, and there's nothing wrong with waiting tables either, but so that if somebody was working at a restaurant and maybe waiting tables and something like this happens again, they have that fallback, or maybe it's their first choice to go work in manufacturing or use some of those skills training. 
Um, and then just to wrap it up so that we can have time for questions, um, I wanted you all to know that I was directly reached out to the gov governor's appointment office, Peggy Venable, and she specifically asked um, because they're, they're continuing on with their, their small business um, task force, but they're creating, they're, they want to do a lot more appointments and they want to bring people in from the small business community to serve on some of these governors, the governor's boards and task force so that the governor can have direct impact from the small business owner. Um, so they asked NFIB to, um, when we're speaking to groups like El Paso Hispanic Chamber um, and speaking to our members, that please let you all know that if you are interested in any sort of government governor appointment um, in serving you know, our great state with your feedback in any certain industry field or just in general, to please let me know, I'll pass your name along. Um, and I will say that they specifically do wanna hear from the Hispanic community. They want the, these boards to look like the state. Um, and I think that's really a good step in the right direction um, that we hear from, from the minority community, from women, and it's not just one set of people. So um, just keep that out there. And then your El Paso delegation, you've got a um, couple of open seats there. NFIB hasn't put our endorsements out yet, but keep an eye out for those. We will. Um, we've interviewed people that are running in that Will Hurd seat. And I know that um, Representative Blanco is running in the um, Jose Rodriguez seat. Um, we've got a great relationship with him and, and, and your other delegation. Um, so looking forward to that. Um, but I, I think I've pretty much hit it. And, and so just ask some questions. Let me know uh, what I've missed and what we need to address. All right. Thank you so much, Annie. A lot of great information that you've provided for all of our members and all of our attendees. We do have some questions coming in, but I do wanted to kind of launch um, our question and answer session. You mentioned a lot about the paid sick leave battle that we took on the last legislative session. And what we've seen from recent polling in some of the nationwide polls is an increase in support for single payer, for paid for other paid sick leave at a national level. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that we're gonna see paid sick leave become a bigger issue during this legislative session? And are we also gonna see an even greater push for Medicare expansion this session? I mean, I think that those have been in the last at least three sessions I can recall have been a big push. They have been a big push. And, you know, the Medicaid expansion is always going to be, and I'll tell you that with the way it's set up now, there's not going to be any budging on that. The paid sick leave thing, it's just, it's, we, this is what we try to, everybody supports it. Who doesn't support it, right? But it's a matter of functionality. I mean, it's just, it's economics 101. And so when we talk to proponents of it, which when they poll people and they do the surveys, they say, are you for paid sick leave? Yes, of course. Um, but it's, it's the small business owner needs to make a decision. If I can't, you know, follow this mandate under this guidance and pay, or supposed to pay, then I have to cut in other areas. I have to cut wages. I have to cut bonuses. I might have to cut positions, cut back hours in order to afford this mandate. So that's why, you know, we'll continue to have the discussion, but until we come up with a real resolution, um, for everyone, it, it's just, it's not going to work. And what we don't appreciate is that there's been this manufactured crisis in Texas and nationally. Like I said, the majority of, of small businesses um, and businesses, even the bigger ones, 
offer some sort of paid time off. Um, that's why we think it's a bit disingenuous when cities want to mandate it. And in that ordinance, there's little gotcha things that if, if an employer is even alleged to not comply with it, that the city would have complete subpoena power over their employee records, which if I were an employee, I wouldn't be happy about that. And, and in these same ordinances, they exempt out uh, labor organizations. They wouldn't have to offer it as part of their collective bargaining agreements, but an employer would. And some of their arguments are, well, we offer it. Well, so do we. So we're going to continue to have that discussion. To answer your question, yes, I think it's going to be, uh, again, one of the number one discussions, both of those uh, topics. And I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. And I think that's why it's good that we all really share our perspective and help put a face on why we're not just opposing it as a terrible idea. We're opposing it because it's not practical. It's not, you know, it's just one size fits all does not work. So we do have a question that came in and just a little bit of housekeeping before we finish up with our questions. First of all, if you're tuning in with us via Zoom, of course, ask questions via the question and answer panel where you can go ahead and raise your hand and ask your question live on the air. If you're tuning in with us via Facebook Live, our communications director, Patrick Espinosa, is standing by to go ahead and submit any questions that you put in the comments section to us so we can also answer those live on the air. We do have a question coming in and Annie, I'll warn you, we um, had Luke Legate a couple of weeks ago do an industry briefing on the Texas oil and gas industry. So mm -hmm. I think that's still on some people's minds. Um, mm -hmm. The question is what role have issues with the oil industry had on your optimism index? So um, that index is, uh, done nationally so we haven't really honed in on just texas even though the oil issue is a national issue i you know i'm just trying to think back because we've got we've had several of them i don't know that we've polled directly on that issue um i know we've polled on like supply and demand and a lot of our members um have said that you know sort of the supply chain issue has been an issue um for them that it's um you know, several of our members that are in manufacturing or some, some of the other, the other industries have had uh, trouble with the supply chain because of COVID. Um, directly, I don't have an answer for you, but I can look at that. Our research foundation, they do break it down so scientifically that there's some components that kind of get pushed down, but that might be one of them. So I'll, I'll check on that. And if not, um, what we on the state level to do as well um, is we pull our members and do our own surveys. So um, that might be a really good question to ask our members here on the statewide level. So our next question is about PPP funds. And you know, here locally, we've seen an issue where the governor issued orders at the state level, but those are not necessarily applying to El Paso because of the number of cases. We've seen that in other counties, but from those other counties, have you heard about businesses concerned about running out of their PPP funds? before we actually get back up and running or allow them to get back up and running almost at full capacity? Yes, yes, actually. You know, what I was telling a reporter recently is um, there was some hope, some glimmer of hope when um, business owners saw that they could apply for this PPP money. Um, and then when they saw, and this didn't, when Congress passed it, there weren't all these caveats and provisions, but the SBA and the Treasury issued these rules um, that really hamstrung all these businesses. And so, 
you know, when you've got an eight week period, well, you might not really be fully up and running before that eight week period expires, like you said. And they're afraid that not only would they run out of the money, but they would have to pay it back because they would be spending it on, because they wouldn't be running with, you know, their, their employees that, the percentage of employees that they would have to hire back. So, you know, ultimately the PPP would become more debt. So not only would they run out of money, but then they'd have to pay back the money that they ran out of on top of the other debt that they have. So that is something that's part of our, um, when we have been working with Congress in our letter to the SBA and the Treasury, that was uh, part of our list of things to, uh, you know, extend it out, extend the uh, terms of the loan um, so that they do have to pay it back. They pay it back at the terms that were set at that low, I believe 1.7 interest rate. I can't recall now. Um, but th that is a concern of our members. And first and foremost, that's what we've been, we are working on right now with Congress and the SBA and the Treasury. So we do have kind of a follow-up question to that. We know that the governor's office and Lyft Fund actually announced some PPP loans that they are providing specifically to the state of Texas. But we do have a question coming in asking if there are plans for an emergency business fund that would be set up at the state level. Something similar to kind of what Florida has that they're able to engage whenever there's a natural disaster or a pandemic like this that nobody was really expecting. No, that's a really good question. And that money with the lift fund, um, you know, it ran out like in two yeah. days. Um, but it was obviously, it was good. And, and some people were able to benefit from it. So that's sort of those, um, emer <clears throat> excuse me, emergency bridge gap loans, which are in place during certain disasters. Um, we, that's actually, and I need to put that on my list when I'm talking about things we're going to be working on. Um, that has been brought up on the statewide level. Um, we've had a lot of members that are, were in the, the disaster area declared um, after Hurricane Harvey, mm -hmm. and they were trying to make use of those uh, emergency disaster loans, um, and they're those bridge loans that, that sort of do fill that gap between that right. you wouldn't have to get back. There was a lot of issues with those, and mostly on the federal level, and um, that's one of the things that we've brought up with Governor Abbott. Um, and we've talked with the speaker and lieutenant governor about, so, um, you know, that's, that's on our list. They, they know that that sort of needs to be talked about here. And I think using um, other states as an example is always really good because think about it, Texas, we're very competitive. We don't want to, we don't want to be following other states. We want to be leading them. Um, so that is something that is on our radar is something that just know that it is on their radar. I point over there cause that's where the capital is. <laughs> It is on the radar across the street and it's in conversation. So you brought up uh, conversations with the speaker and we do have a very political question that came in asking you if you've heard anything about the speaker's race for this next legislative session and uh, who might be the next speaker. Yeah, well, as you know, one of your delegation, uh, Representative Moody, is the speaker pro tem. Um, so there's been conversation of, of, of Moody, you know, taking the, the reins officially. Um, he was obviously on the dais a lot last session and did a great job. Um, everybody th thought that he handled that position really well. Um, there's been some names thrown out there, but honestly, since this COVID thing, it's just gone totally by the wayside. Um, initially, you had folks like um, Tam Parker, Phil King, Drew, uh, Drew Darby, Trent Ashby, those were some names that were out there um, previously. Um, but honestly, since this has happened, it's sort of gone quiet. We haven't heard anything. 
And I will tell you that although the current speaker, um, you know, is on his way out, since since this has happened, you know, he has really stepped out and he has been a part of the strike force to open Texas. He's had um, weekly conference calls with the entire house. He's been very proactive. So we appreciate that because he could just be like, mm, yeah, I'm on my way out. I don't really care. But honestly, I've seen more out of Speaker Bonin in these last several months than, you know, since he kind of first announced his retirement. And he's been doing a lot specifically for the small business community. And we applaud him for that. So we do have another question specifically about the state budget. So obviously with a decrease in revenue, businesses not generating revenue, not able to pay taxes on that revenue, how is the budget going to be impacted? And have you heard about what are the first places that people want to start making cuts at the state level? Mm, that's going to be hard. It's <laughs> unfortunately a lot of the programs that were put in place and I can't just name one, but you know, Obviously the budget, you've got, you've got the appropriations for education, transportation, um, you know, and things like that. And generally our revenue comes from the oil. And when the price of oil drops, that cuts our, our revenue. And that's gonna be the main portion of it. But there's been a, a lot of programs set up through higher ed um, and elsewhere that, that will be cut, that would be the first to be cut. And they'll say, you know, we're going to do what we can to make sure that these programs are cut. But, you know, what else are they going to do? Um, and I know they're already moving forward on that. But unfortunately, I think we are going to see some cuts in some really good programs. And that could even include programs through, you know, the Department of Health, State Health, State Health Services, or even programs through, um, you know, the Department of Aging and Rehabilitative, I can't speak today, Rehabilitative Services, or even some of the child care services. I just know that um, that's why it's going to be really important for anybody that has is, is dependent, any of these programs and that you work for, they're dependent on the appropriations process to start now, be proactive, put a face on what you're doing and say, this, this is why it's so important. This so that when you go back to the legislature in January and you're asking them to reappropriate money for you, they have a harder time cutting that program. Um, you know, obviously their highest focus is going to have to be those, the top tier, you know, the education and the infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm worried that there's going to be stuff cut off into the ports and obviously our ports are very important. Um, and, you know, I'd say border towns need to be worried. And I think that, um, anybody in a border town needs to start now and say, this is what we do for the entire economy of Texas and start you know, making that message be known now. Um, and then you've, El Paso has a good opportunity with some of these open seats. Um, you know, talk to them about what's important to you and let them know that you'll support them if they make sure that that money stays in place. Um, but it's gonna be a difficult session. It's gonna be near impossible to ask them for any tax cuts at all. Um, and we're, you know, we're trying to let our members know that we need to be realistic going in, but we're going to push for what we want to push for. And one thing that all of y'all should be, um, really concerned with it, but we're going to make sure that it's refunded. So those small business development centers that are funded by the SBA, they have the federal state match and NFIB, we work with them a lot and I'm sure y'all do too. They're a great resource to the community, to the people that want to start a business, to people that need business counseling. 
um, and they work through the higher ed system. Every session we have to fight to help get their money um, refunded so that they get that federal match money so they can stay in place in the state of Texas. They have been critical during this time for PPP applications and idle applications and counseling business owners through this. I mean, almost just emotional counseling too. So I would ask that we, you know, work with um, you all the Hispanic Chamber and, and anybody there to, um, you know, coalesce together and make sure that those SBDCs are refunded. It sounds like it's going to be an incredibly busy and probably contentious session with everyone knowing that there are cuts coming and everyone fighting for their programs. So it is going to be more important than ever to get in there early. Um, so the day after election day, you've got to get in there and start talking with your elected officials and even before then, if possible. Yeah, because, you know, I say do it before because, um, you know, if they, they want your support even vocally, uh, work with them on it. But sort of give them the messaging to be talking about on their campaign uh, routes. You know, when they're talking to media, um, you, you tell them what's important to you and hopefully they'll relay that out into the, the campaign world and with reporters, which helps get the message out there. So we do have some questions that came in via Facebook. First of all, we have a question about where can we find information available on positions and the need to serve locally and statewide? Um, before you know, we, we discuss the, the statewide positions, if you are tuning in with us via Facebook Live, I encourage you, if you're interested in a state appointment, to reach out to the Hispanic Chamber. Um, we can provide you with the application, and we do have a great relationship. We visit them every year, except, of course, this year because of uh, the, the lack of ability to travel right now. We do visit with Peggy and her team every year to find mm -hmm. out what positions they have available. So I would encourage you uh, to give us a call. Yes, and I'll second that nomination. So <laughs> yeah, that's good, and I and I really please do serve. It's not; it doesn't take a whole lot of your time, um, but it's so important that they have your input. And then we've got another question coming in, asking where an employee could apply for maybe some assistance, like a thousand dollar loan or something along those lines. Yeah. So um, actually, if you go through the governor's website, there's so many grant programs. Um, there are grant programs out there that if they're not used, they just go away and it's free money. It's not anything you'd have to pay back. My best advice to help navigate you through that process, and I just mentioned them, um, is go through your local, your regional SBDC office. And I can send the SBDC regional information over if y'all don't have that, but um, to, because they can help you find those grants. That's what they're there for. Um, they work for you. They're, you know, taxpayer funded. Um, but the governor's office, the governor's website is a great resource. Um, and, but really, so that you don't have to do all the searching, I would help have the SBDCs nav navigate you through that process. And believe me, there's plenty out there. Use them. So we do have, we have a couple questions and you had discussed uh, kind of tax relief at the state level. And that's something that you all and the Hispanic Chamber will be fighting for because I think that we hear that from members all the time is, relief at the state level, but also they want property tax relief at the local level as well. And we talked a little bit about some unemployment insurance relief and relief from those fees that we'll be fighting for this session. We've got another question uh, that's asking about while agencies are cutting spending, are there any agencies that we could see an increase in spending from in reaction to COVID-19 during this session? Um, yes. Uh, the um HS, 
uh, office has um, hired on a lot more people. Um, Department of State Health Services has hired on a lot more people. Um, I think that, you know, the National Guard has really um, had to put on a, a lot more people. There's going to be some, some increase on the state level funding for these folks. Um, but I would say that the agencies probably that will be upping, um, upping their spending would definitely be the Department of State Health Services. Um, they've been, they've been there at every uh, press release that the governor's been doing that, you know, it's, it's not that hard for an agency to streamline. And that's what we ask every session and that, and um, so like your licensing folks and whatever, it's just go down streamline, cut. Here's what I am worried about is that while in the past several sessions, we have streamlined the licensing process in that we're not um, licensing every single person that wants to operate in this state. Some, some, some positions that don't need to be licensed, some industries that don't need to be licensed. And so that's been, they've done a great job of doing that the last couple of sessions, um, the Department of Regulatory Services. But I'm afraid in order to get some revenue back that you might see some of that coming back. Um, you might see some of these, you know, like the shampooist at a salon now having to pay for an annual license. So I would be prepared for that. Um, you're going to start seeing state agencies coming up with their own clever ways to try to get revenue back um, on their books. Increasing licensing is probably going to be one of them. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Annie. Thank you for such great information. If anybody missed any part of our conversation, we are going to be turning your session into a podcast that will be available uh, Friday afternoon before Memorial Day weekend hits. So if you are, you know, staying at home, quarantining, social distancing, you can always uh, check out Sharing Sweat Equity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. I really want to thank you for taking some time out of your day. I know you're extremely busy taking care of the state of Texas right now and working for our small businesses here, but thank you so much for such great information. Well, thank you. And please keep up the great job. I mean, you and Cindy knock it out of the park over there. I think the El Paso Hispanic Chamber is one of the greatest in the state. Um, y'all are very professional and you do a great job on advocacy. So thank you to y'all. And let's just continue our conversations and our partnership. And I'm here to help anytime. Thank you so much. And we'll be working closely with you from a distance uh, during this next legislative session. Have a great weekend, Annie, and we will see you next time. That's it for this episode of Sharing Sweat Equity. Again, thank you to Annie and NFIB for all of the great information and insight that they have shared. And of course, a big thank you to our partners, Sun Carpets and Epicenter. And as always, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so you never miss a new episode of Sharing Sweat Equity. We will catch you all next time.